What's up, guys? Uh, welcome back to another episode of THB Strength. Um, I believe this is episode, I guess, maybe five now, if you include the Q&A and uh, talking about Isaiah's um, training of recent. So today we have Dean Jackson. Um, Dean and I have been corresponding for probably, I want to say like two-ish years or something like that. Initially, I'd heard of Driveline, I think from one of my friends who had just kind of recommended them. And, you know, just started following them and then might have might have uh, DM Dean when he posted something about like force plates or something. And I was like, oh, this is sick. You guys actually use this stuff. Um, so my my knowledge of baseball specifically um, is not I wouldn't say limited, but I, I didn't play baseball collegiately. I'm sure a lot of listeners, you guys know that already. Um, so we have Hunter here. Hunter actually played at Tulane. Hunter, if you want to talk a little bit about your experiences and then Dean. Um, I want to hear basically your story, how you ended up at driveline, what you're doing now, all those details, but Hunter, go ahead. You can start first. <laughs> yeah. Dean, I'll go quick because I, know everyone's listening. No, so I, uh, <laughs> I attempted to play baseball at Tulane. I was a mean bench player, um, <laughs> always injured, whether it was ankles, back, elbows, shoulders, never could seem to be healthy. Um, ended up finishing up that career and was really curious as to why. I was always injured, why I couldn't get healthy. John always says research is me search. That's really how I got into health and fitness was just trying to understand exactly why I wasn't healthy the way that other people seem to be. And um, just a curiosity for how to maximize performance. Unfortunately, that came after baseball, not before baseball, but uh, better late than never, I guess. So yeah, I was a mean bench player all in all. That's uh, my long story short for two-lane baseball. Uh, yeah, I have a similar story, uh, except for, uh, injuries, like I ended up coming back from them. So had a big hip injury, uh, in, well, shoulder injury in high school, which just ended up me being training incorrectly, uh, hip injury in college, which ended up me just being an idiot with my mechanics and not knowing how my body works. Uh, and then an elbow injury in pro ball, which ended up, uh, being me pretty much mishandling my on-ramp. Um, and really it stemmed from, a misunderstanding of what the throw actually is and, and the properties that uh, one kind of dictate performance and kind of dictate safety at, at the same time. Um, so yeah, similar story in terms of uh, getting hurt all the time. But um, as uh, John mentioned before we jumped on this, it's kind of something you run into when you're trying to peak, when you're trying to hit like absolute peak performance, sometimes you break through the wall a little bit and uh, you go a little bit too far. So it's what it is. Um, but yeah, how I got with driveline, um, after my hip injury in college, um, so I, I threw pretty hard in early college. I was up to 97 my sophomore year um, and then ended up uh, tearing my hip labrum, my back hip. Um, basically, I, I have no... Me too. I've done yeah, that. Yeah, I have no <laughs> hip internal rotation, so I've got a huge cam lesion on my femur. Um, so I would... Oh, beautiful. Me too. Yeah. I've got zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would hold... Yeah, it's literally on my right, it's zero. On my left, it's negative three. So no hip and turn rotation on either hip. Um, and I would hold external rotation on my back leg for as long as possible. And then I would just shove that back femur into internal rotation. And like, I created a huge amount, like the pelvis would rotate really fast, create this huge stretch um, in like uh, my obliques, which obviously produces a lot of power. But if you don't have that range of motion, it's just gonna break, so. That's what ended up happening there. That's how I found driveline. Yeah, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just giving the overview. 
And I was going to say, I have to interrupt you. Uh, what's super ironic about that is like as a two foot jumper and a high jumper and a hurler and someone who wanted to do the multi internal rotation at the hip is like super important. And as someone who understands biomechanics, you've probably watched some of the stuff and you've seen the block foot and the way that your pelvis kind of rotates in two foot jumping. And then in one foot jumping, seeing the bar drive or seeing the, sorry, the knee and the hip drive away from the bar and how much internal rotation you get. I forced those positions so so much and then also in deep squatting that like i also am in the same position as you i'm pretty sure i have maybe maybe zero degrees in both hips maybe if i'm lucky like uh i right now for example i'm sitting with my legs totally crossed like this just because that's my most natural <laughs> position um so i've always found it interesting like watching some of your stuff and then yeah i've also tore uh tore the labor in my hip um as well and and uh, doing stupid stuff, forcing positions, and, and we can also get into that maybe uh, in a little bit. But anyways, yeah, talk about how you got into driveline and also kind of talk about what driveline even is because some of our uh, listeners might not even know how, I guess, prestigious maybe you guys are and, mm -hmm. and how well you're known. So um, that kind of ties in together. So when I was uh, coming back from my hip surgery, um, after, so I punched 97, go get hip surgery, um, my velo just did this nice little steady tank, uh, as did my ability to walk. Uh, <laughs> Pain-free walking was just non-existent anymore. Um, so ended up getting hip surgery, came back like fully healthy a uh, year and a half later, and I'm like topping 87. So uh, obviously a, a feature in baseball is pretty much done, uh, going from that velocity all the way down to pretty much uh, below average college stuff. Um, so... Uh, it turned into me searching, like everybody kept saying, oh, you know, your velocity is just going to come back. It's just going to come back. And I kept searching for people who had an answer other than that. Uh, and that's what I found driveline was basically they didn't, um, they didn't really accept certain, like not knowing things, if that makes sense. They didn't accept not understanding how absolutely everything worked in terms of, at the time it was just in throwing. So we've since branched off into hitting and, and a few other things, but the time it was just throwing and pitching so that was what really drew me to them was they didn't know the answer and they knew that they didn't know the answer and they were willing to dump an unbelievable amount of time and money and just resources into finding the answers so i got hooked up with them in 2015 when i was still in college uh and that's where i've been ever since so trained with them uh into pro ball and then got hurt uh and then ended up working for him and still working for him while still trying to train so uh, yeah, as far as, as far as prestigious, uh, we all appreciate that comment. Um, but yeah, we worked, uh, we had, uh, uh, we counted it up the other day and it's something like, uh, 40% of current big league pitchers or something like that have been to driveline or have, uh, trained with us in some capacity. So, uh, a bunch of guys are still currently doing it. A bunch of guys that I'd love to name that would be, uh, that would pique your interest, but we're not allowed to. So. I just understand that there are important people there and we're not allowed to talk about it, but yeah, it's great. It's an unbelievable environment. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's great. It's so much fun. Yeah, no, I, uh, definitely like having followed the, uh, the page for a while. I cannot even remember how I heard about it. It might've been through, through like a friend that played like in an independent league. And, uh, you know, I kind of just said, oh yeah, they like, they do weighted balls and they deal with, you know, throwing velocity and biomechanics. You should look into them. It's really interesting. And I was kind of like, yeah, like I'll, I'll check it out. And then I started looking into it and I'm like, oh, this is like, this is where I live. This is exactly <laughs> what I live for. And I started looking at like, 
you, I mean, I think you guys at the time were mostly doing um, like 3D motion analysis, I think, mm -hmm. and and then started to do more with force plates and throwing velocities. And like, there's so many simul similarities. I mean, in, in general, like just movement or projecting your body, you know, is, is essentially uh, the same thing. It, it, you know, it's the same physics. It, you can't change physics just because you're throwing a baseball versus your body into, into space. Um, so when I started to go through and look at a lot of what you guys were doing and, and a lot of the principles you guys were talking about, I was like, oh my gosh, there's like endless, endless similarities here and to jumping and, and all the questions I have to jumping, you know, they basically figure those out, but now more so for throwing. And, uh, yeah, it was just interesting for me to see that. So that was, uh, my first kind of experience with it. And then, you know, I'd, I'd followed, uh, you for a while, like I said, and seen some of the stuff you were doing with the, with the force plates. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then we had like a brief discussion about, uh, the way that the hip kind of blocks and rotates around as a, as a reaction and, and the, the front plant leg. So yeah, that was kind of my first, and then obviously continuing exposure to, <laughs> to what you guys were doing. It was to what you guys were doing mostly through you. Um, and I think now you do most of the programming, right? Like the online programming for driveline. Is that correct? Yeah. So my role has shifted a little bit. Um, I'm really good at making systems. So we, uh, my role for the past year or so was the manager of online training. Um, cause a few people kept trying to make systems for it and we couldn't quite make it work. So built a system there. And then I've since moved into now my title is just pitching coordinator. So essentially just a manager on the pitching side. And, um, basically my job is building systems, uh, training trainers, uh, from like a kind of a systematic approach, uh, developing products for that we can scale and, and build out mostly education based. Um, yeah. So, and then a lot of it comes from where you said, uh, research is me search. That's basically my job is me sit at home and research about why I suck or why this hurts or how can I get better at this? <laughs> and then, oh, wait, there's a lot of applications for this and then distribute it. That makes sense. But yeah, not just me, yeah, plenty of people on the team do that everything. too. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like kind of funny hearing, you know, your, the story of driveline and what you're doing and things like that. Cause I think Hunter can attest to this. There's probably a lot of, a lot of similarities on the business side of things and what you're doing and, and what I'm doing in the realm of like jumping, sprinting, mm -hmm. you know, change of direction, all that different stuff. Um, but it's good to, uh, it's obviously good to hear your perspective and know, it seems like at least that we're kind of on the right track. Hunter, I don't know if you would agree with that. I feel like you have a better gauge for that stuff, but, um, anyways, yeah, we'll kind of, skip all of this information. We'll get really into it. Hunter, maybe if you want to leave a timestamp here, so you know, about 15 minutes, we're getting into the nitty gritty. But um, <laughs> the whole reason we did this podcast is because Dean had uh, DM me and said, Hey, um, you know, I, I want to hear your opinion on how much extensive versus intensive plyos that you put in your guys programming. So I guess I'll turn this back over to you. Um, what are you looking to do with plyometrics? Are you looking for upper body? lower body, what is kind of the goal and the objective that you're trying to achieve and why are you um, looking to integrate those elements? So um, the, for the longest time, people never really classified the throw as any type of movement, if that makes sense. Um, a lot of people like to think, oh, the throw is just mechanics or the throw is just strength or the throw is just this or that or whatever. They, they don't really have a good understanding of how everything works. Um, but it's pretty clear that uh, the throw is really a plyometric. You know, uh, hip, you've heard hip and shoulder separate, hip and shoulder separation a lot. 
just the, the uh, kind of a stretch or the loading of the tissues between the pelvis and the upper torso. And same thing happens with the shoulder where it goes into external rotation and then rebounds into the throw. So most of the mechanics are loading those two rubber bands or springs or however you want to think about it. Um, and then most of training is then training the properties of those springs. So um, I know how our throwing programs were written originally, and it was mainly through what ended up working. It wasn't through the research on what the throw actually does, if that makes sense. So I was interested, I was taking a look at, well, how can we restructure throwing programs a little bit to be more along the lines of the research of tendon optimization in terms of the adaptations. Um, so obviously looking a lot into uh, uh, Keith Barr and, and Jill Cook and uh, going along that route and your own stuff. I've looked at a lot of your own stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I figured you'd be, because I, I, one of my questions I asked you before was about uh, like different types of plyometrics. And I was really interested when you were talking about um, doing different types of plyometrics for different um, like pieces in the body or they do different things, if that makes sense. And you're focusing on them for different people uh, for like different reasons. Um, and this is something that's just totally not done at all in throwing programs. Uh, really no analysis of that is done or application of it. So I was really interested in to just hear like, how do you determine the volume for plyometrics? How do you progress it? Because uh, that's really, in my world, that's what the throw is. You know, it's just a plyometric. Um, and I think that's why people get hurt so much is because imagine if you try to do this unbelievably high depth jump with uh, you haven't done anything for like three months and you're like, day one, I'm going to do a depth jump off of five feet. You're like, well, long toss. Yeah, a exactly. Let's so see how far we can crank it yeah, out. exactly. <laughs> can we get yards day one? Let's find out. Yeah, if, <laughs> if I was like, if I was like, yeah, man, uh, let's just do a depth jump, uh, a depth jump off this house, you'd be like, that's a stupid thing. I'm not going to do that. But if we're like, yeah, let's go long toss. We haven't thrown in three months. People would be like, oh, that's totally normal. But it's like, Perfect. I mean, let's it's not the exact same yards. thing. But it's the same thing. Yeah. It, so uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's where I'm trying to draw the connection. If that makes sense. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, yeah. I had actually, no damage to my arm. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting. <laughs> dude hunter you're a clown and i love it um <laughs> uh it just makes me laugh because like in jumping we see the same thing like people will be like ah oh, you know what i haven't uh done anything in two years i've been sitting on the couch for about that long and i guess i'll go outside and try to dunk again and then you like go to try to jump in it and you're like oh i can't jump at all or you tear your acl or like you hear crazy stories like that and that's essentially what baseball players do they're like yeah let's uh let's go out back and we'll try to see how far i can throw this yeah. baseball yeah up in shambles and it's like what are you doing <laughs> yeah, yeah a quick note uh just uh just because we're relevant or it's relevant uh right now is uh just the forces in throwing though like the elbow uh how do i want to word this like the the valgus torque um especially in the arms yeah. like in max external rotation um some of these guys are producing forces that are like equivalent to a 200 pound kettlebell in maximum external rotation and it's applied in like uh it's like 0.1 seconds or something like that is generally so think That's about crazy. just like a, a kettlebell just being immediately like dropped like lying flat lying yeah. flat and then yeah, holding yeah. it in max external rotation max yes. external rotation so yep. like like back here and then yeah. and then actually maybe this one's better and then yeah. just, try to, just try to hold it <laughs> yeah 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 that would be and so it's bad applied, how quickly that's applied too so while it's the same principle yeah. i think that's why people get hurt so much more often in throwing than they do and it, where you're talking about people get hurt a lot but i think people get hurt a lot more in throwing is just because they don't realize 
the extent that the forces are actually happening, if that makes sense. But that was an aside. Oh, I, Dean, I just I wanted to question. add that. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. If you could measure the force of one major league baseball pitcher, who would it be? Uh, in terms of like, uh, like biomechanics, like see exactly how they move. Yeah. Um, well, we've honestly, we've done that with a lot of guys, <laughs> a lot oh, of really? guys that I wanted to, <laughs> yeah. Where, uh, so you don't have to say yes or no, but my dream would be Tim Lincecum back in the day. Yeah, we've got He was called the freak. Yeah, we, we have data on Tim Lincecum. So when he tried to make a comeback, and I'm allowed to talk about this. Yeah, I'm allowed to talk about this. So that's all right. Uh, oh Tim Lincecum made, uh, he attempted to make a comeback, um, and he came mm-hmm. up to drive line to do it. And so we've got like a full markered set, uh, basically marker biomechanics. They put a bunch of dots on you, like you're going into a video game type thing. And then yep, they throw yep. in the lab and just think of it as a three-dimensional video where you can get all the stresses, all the speeds, all the torques of every piece on everything. So disappointingly, we weren't able to get him back above like 93, but he had some severe hip issues. Uh, he had a... Yeah, uh, yeah back hip labrum tear, and I think a front hip labrum tear, and I think he only had surgery on one of them. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it's like big hip issues. Um, yeah. So obviously if, if you look at the throw as like trying to peak hip and shoulder separation and load it as much as possible and then load the shoulder as much as possible, um, if your pelvis, if you can't actually get into those positions, like you're going you're gonna to really decrease the amount of, amount of force you can set up the chain so something we weren't quite able to figure out but we do have a lot of uh we do i could pull up right now like biomechanics of tim Lincecum, which is pretty sweet because that was one of the first ones I, mean, I wanted he was called to see the freak because you know yep. he was measured at 5 11 yeah sure and <laughs> he was pretty he got, yeah he was about that tall yeah oh really so he yeah. actually was a full 5 11 yeah maybe five ten. listed okay yeah, yeah but his stride there. length what was it it was over 100 percent of his body height Oh, it's huge. Yeah, he jumps super far off the mound. And uh, basically, there's uh, a few different movements. And I know this is getting away a little bit, but that's all right. Uh, there's a few different no, movements you can, <laughs> <laughs> there's a few different movements you can use to load uh, kind of like the rubber band of, of hip and shoulder separation. Uh, first one being like counter rotation of the torso, then rotation of the pelvis during like the drive. A lot of people have heard the drive. I know I'm to give you these terms that don't really mean anything, but that's all right. Uh, yeah, last one. We have we actually have a super well educated like, I guess viewer, I don't know viewership. Oh, perfect. perfect. And and so they love like I talk about this stuff all the time. I don't know if you've listened yeah. to our podcast before, but I'll go into the nitty nitty gritty. So perfect. don't worry about that. If it gets too complex, they can always ask us questions. <laughs> okay, cool. So three things that load hip and shoulder separation: uh, counter rotation of the torso. Um, which happens early on in the throw, then rotation of the pelvis during the drive. And then finally, if you put your pelvis in the right position at the impulse for the block, which the block is just the lead leg getting into the ground, uh, you can actually use that energy that you made coming down the mound and all that momentum. You can turn it into rotation of the pelvis. Now, those three things, if you time them up correctly, peaks hip and shoulder separation, um, and then you send that energy up the chain. Now, with Tim specifically, he just really, really, really overutilized uh, impulse from the block. So he kind of didn't do a lot of uh, counter-rotation of the torso. His pelvis didn't work great uh, in terms of creating hip and shoulder separation during the drive. But when he got into the impulse from the block, he was in the perfect position and created an unbelievable amount of momentum down the mound uh, to then peak hip and shoulder separation that way. So just with the, with the nature of it, if you have three different things that are all adding to kind of the same idea, which is like, create hip and shoulder separation to set up the chain 
then you get a lot of variation in how guys do that, if that makes sense. So Tim was just a yeah. huge outlier of selling out for the impulse from the block. It's actually super interesting because awesome. like if you look at if you look at jumping, it's super similar. You see so many different strategies to generate momentum because that's really what you're doing is like, hey, look, we have a mass. We want to generate a, a velocity on this mass. And, you know, mm -hmm. if you're looking at the ball, it's the same way. OK, so how do you change a momentum? You need impulse. Well, how do you what is impulse? Impulse is the force over the period of time that you're going to generate it. And baseball is like such an easy analogy. Or I always give the analogy of like if you were to try to strike a, a like a heavy bag, if you're a boxer and you're trying to strike a heavy bag, if you had a heavy bag just sitting out in front of you and you rested your fist on it, and then you know you pulled it all the way back you know, as far as you could to where the heavy bag or your fist was at your armpit, and then you pushed the whole way through it, you'd get that heavy bag really swinging. It would, it would generate a lot of momentum. Or you might have someone where it's like Mike Tyson punch out or knockout, whatever it's called, where he just like jabs the bag as hard as he can, and the bag just starts swinging like crazy. And that's the same way that jumping is. You can generate force over really long impulses, uh, or you can generate force, you know, super quickly. Uh, mm. Or sorry, you can generate impulse really quickly with super high force, low time, or you can generate impulse over a long time and generate a lot of force. Baseball, generally speaking, I'm assuming is kind of the same way. It's like, well, there's tons of ways to do that in the first place with jumping, but baseball is probably the same way where it's like, hey, look, we know these three things are how we're getting a long time on the ball, or we're getting a, to generate a lot of impulse or we're getting a lot of force in a very mm -hmm. short period of time. So, I mean, I'm assuming generally you probably want to increase both, obviously. And yeah. that's how you generate, you know, well, momentum on the ball. But I don't know if that's true. Yeah, the interesting part is uh, with baseball, it's not like high jump where the, the highest person wins, right? It's not like javelin throw where the longest throw wins. It's who can compete at the game of baseball uh, now, obviously, throwing velocity matters in there, you know, like there's not many big leaguers that go out there and sit 90. There just aren't, especially in today's game. The most guys sit. I mean, if you guys have watched the playoffs at all, there's a bunch of guys you've never heard of touch at 100. Uh, it just helps. It makes it easier. It gives you a larger margin of error. Yeah, that makes you can sense. make mistakes guys, and still get away with it. Yeah, they have less time. That's all it is, is like uh, if someone who throws 95 and someone who, th who throws 100 are the exact same in terms of everything except for that velocity change. The guy who throws 100, the hitter has less time to see the pitch, less time to determine what it is, a bunch of different stuff, you know? So, but where I was going with that is essentially um, it's not always about perfectly maxing out your throwing velocity because sometimes some of these changes can make guys worse actually at the game, if that makes sense. So changing, it, it's this interesting balance where, um, if we make this change, is it going to affect like his ability to command the ball? Is it going to change uh, his pitch metrics? Um, a few different things like that. So um, yeah, it's, it's it's this balance of uh, how if he throws harder, is it going to be better? What's that going to change? A few different things like that. If that makes sense. So it's not all just yeah. pure athletic ability. Yeah, probably the the thing that's most synonymous to this, or like the best illustration, is dunking. Is like as soon as you had a trick dunk, like. You know, my peak vertical off like an approach run, you know, my reach is uh, 7, 11 and a half in shoes and I can touch 11, 3 and a, 11, 3, 11, 4. I can't remember exactly what it is. It's 39 inches um, and like, or 39 and a half is my vertical. So it's just like a hair under 40. And that's like a legit value, not someone fudging the reach or anything like that. Like sure. you're talking really reaching. And if I were to fudge the reach, I could easily get 
into the 40s it would not be hard <laughs> like i could fudge my reach at like seven nine and then boom i have a 41 and a half inch vertical but yeah. if you're really trying to uh, even more i could probably fudge it way more than that. a lot of guys do that but if you're uh just to shout myself out to give myself some credibility uh, but <laughs> um but probably the most analogous thing to this is like if you go to do a windmill or between the legs or you go off the dribble um you know it's like okay well yeah you might have 39 inches of vertical off the run with no approach and that it makes it a lot easier if you go off the lob or something but adding this other element in obviously does not necessarily equate to making that dunk does it make it easier yes uh and even maybe another better illustration is like basketball like people think like oh if you jump higher the game just must be so much easier not really <laughs> like you got to know how to play basketball or or if you're a freak athlete we had, we had this guy josh williamson i think uh and and josh was like wasn't I think that was who it was. And he was like, he's a bobsledder, like a world-class bobsledder. And he weighs 235, probably equates to like a 4-3 high or 4-4 low in the 40, laser time, like mm -hmm. legit, uh, you know, bench presses 225, who knows number of times. He's a giant human with a with a massive standing vertical. And you're like, why aren't you in the NFL? You played football. Like, what happened? He's like, uh, there's a whole sport <laughs> like, where there's so much more than just how fast you can run. Like... Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of funny. Yeah, people, I mean, obviously, you know, it, the flashy stuff is is what's fun. You know, people probably want to throw the ball hard because it's like when you see a 101 come up, uh, that's that's awesome. <laughs> like, that's crazy to see. Um, but yeah, there's there are a lot of similarities in what you were talking about to kind of bring us back to, uh, you know, the injury thing. And then also like track and field, understanding how you generate force or how you generate impulse through like a whip and flail is what we call it in, in shot put, uh, you know, where you'd get that separation at the hip versus the shoulder axis and you're doing uh, generation of impulse through like uh, proximal to distal segments, essentially. And, you know, the same thing's true for, for baseball, I would assume. Um, talked about that too, like how the training for baseball was seemingly light years <laughs> like like back i think for a while people were like oh yeah bench press is terrible for you like don't bench press and i'm like wait what i'm like and then dean i don't know your opinion on this was like yeah uh, bench press actually highly highly correlates with like <laughs> your external rotation velocity and external rotation velocity correlates with your throwing velocity or something like i think that was the connection um yeah the, the connection was uh people think uh, especially in rehab so let's say you get hurt and uh I've been hurt, so I know this. Uh, you go to rehab, and they're like, oh, well, you need to strengthen the decelerators of your shoulder because uh, you can only accelerate as fast as you, or like as much as you can decelerate, if that makes sense. They, they use the analogy of a car, where if a car is going 100 miles an hour and your brakes can only go 80 miles an hour, like they can only stop you from 80 miles an hour, like you're going to crash. And it's like, that's a great analogy, but that's just not the logistics of what happens. What happens is uh, in maximum rotation of the shoulder, you've loaded the internal rotators of the shoulder and the stress there is three times higher than after you release the ball and then decelerate it, of if course. that makes sense. Yeah, no, so the internal rotators, <laughs> yeah, you're looking at the pec, you're looking at the lat and you're looking at um, like the front of the shoulder. And those are all the muscles that they tell you to freaking avoid because, uh, oh, well, you'll get tight and uh, you'll get hurt and you'll throw slower, all this different stuff. It's like, yeah, after lifting, you may get a little tight and you may get a little bit worse at throwing, the skill of throwing. But once you build up those qualities, then you can get back into the skill of throwing. 
and it's fine. You know, also, if you get tight, there's a thing called the lacrosse ball, which is fine, that uh, will help you feel less tight. It's just like, they just, it's, yeah, it's hard to, uh, that's, I mean, that's how it works yeah. for me too. It's like, oh, well, I have the solution if your knee hurts, stop jumping. It's like, oh, that's the worst the yeah. worst example I've heard. Um, <laughs> like, that was the worst solution I, I've got all day. I could have told you that. Like, um, yeah, and yeah. sometimes it is jump less, but, or throw less or whatever. I'm sure you know that. Uh, sure. But yeah, I think. Um, the program, like that's yeah. all it is, is like, if you, like, for example, in throwing, if you long toss yesterday, uh, out to now, if we're going to use the definition of long toss of like throwing really hard, not just throwing for a little bit of distance, because you can throw for distance at really slow velocities. But if you throw really, really hard today, then you can't throw really hard tomorrow. It's just yeah, how it is. You know, yeah. you need to exactly. So it's not like, it's not, oh, throw hard less or oh, jump less. It's have a good program that matches your current ability uh, to recover. And then, like, if your threshold for stress is here, then what you should be applying should be like this. Yeah. It should not be this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when guys get hurt uh, on the throwing What did you say, Hunter? Yeah. I said we needed you at Tulane. It was long <laughs> yeah. toss every day. Yep, yep. But it's like uh, there's actually a guy that uh, – um, uh, Carson Fulmer, when he came to driveline, uh, he's there right now. But uh, when the first time he came there, we wrote him a program – and he's like, what's this? Uh, it's a recovery day. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I mean, you, you threw hard the day before. So then like today you're going to have to rest. And he's like, oh, I never did that. And uh, in college, he literally long tossed max distance every single day. That's what we were told. Uh, That's what we were told. Yeah. We were, never got baseball hurt. players are not very sophisticated trainers. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is true. But for him, it just so happened that he could recover from that amount of like, from that where, where John, we were talking a little bit about some guys uh, are able to do that every day, like a max intensity stimulant every day. Uh, he was just able to do that. Now, as he got older, uh, hormone levels decreased a little bit, not able to do that anymore and recover from it. But at the time, he could. So if you can recover from it, the more you can apply that high intensity stimulus, like it's going to be more optimal as long as you don't get hurt from it, at least from a throwing perspective. Yeah. Um, so him, he just happened to have hormones through the roof and was able to recover from it so sure let's go you know and he threw 98 in college so it worked crazy i have a question for you um yeah so the chinese weightlifting uh team kind of what they do is they recruit anyone that looks like they have promised they throw an ungodly amount of volume and then whoever genetically is is able to withstand the volume ends up making it and you know that's how they have their team so I know well. when I was, yeah, yeah. Well, when, when you have surviving over through. a billion people, you have over a billion people, but like my sense of training for baseball growing up, what now that I can look back on it was very similar to that, where there was no individualization. It was, we're going to have ungodly amounts of volume and good luck. Like whoever ends up making it healthy typically would have a pretty good career, at least through high school. So like how much, how much has the throwing uh, training changed in your opinion in recent years like i would love to know Hopefully a little a bit lot. more how you approach that training yeah like i'm super fascinated yeah. by it well it's funny uh there's a guy uh who's training a driveline right now uh his name's albertus uh if you haven't looked at him on social media before i can give you a link later he is crazy uh works his butt Wait, off is this the guy that uh, puts the, the sniffing salts all the time and like is like that's Erickson. 
which is another crazy guy. I I know a lot of very crazy people. Uh, (laughs) But Albertus, uh, this guy's great. Like one of those where he's like, uh, I'm going to be a big leaguer, like sold his car to be able to come up and train a driveline type thing. Like uh, huge. And he's with the Phillies right now. He did great in his his first year of Pro Bowl, Um, which obviously helps when you care that much, you know. But uh, Albertus was talking about his experience at one of his colleges. And uh, he was like, he was telling about the program and they uh, played long toss to max distance five times a week with a whole bunch of different um, really like some heavy balls, some light balls, just like the volume and the intensity that they were doing was insane. And there was no, oh, these guys should do it. These guys shouldn't do it. It was everybody did it. So he was talking about how everybody like they had, it was like 75% of their pitchers ended up with some sort of very serious injury that year. And we were talking to like, wow, you know, that's pretty, pretty terrible, you know, thinking about what happens to those guys. And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, what happened to the guys who didn't get hurt? And he's like, oh, they all threw 96. And I was like, yep. of course. They did. There you have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how it worked. Survive and yeah. thrive, survive and thrive. <laughs> that but at the same time it's just not sustainable you know if you look at like if you want to most guys want to get paid and that's why they play baseball sure they love baseball but they want to be a big leader and make a bunch of money mm. and to do that you got to be in baseball for like to be a free agent you got to be in the big leagues for like six or seven years i forget the exact number but if you think about the logistics of that you got to play all through high school all through college a few years in the minor leagues get to the big leagues go your three years where you're paid minimum wage in the big leagues and then you got three arbitration years, and then you can sign a free agent contract. So this is not a how quickly can I get to velocities that will put me in the big leagues. This is a, like, I need to be able to play baseball at that level for the rest of my life. And when you look at that, when you look at it from that perspective, it starts to take all these really extreme, like the, oh, should I take two more weeks in my on-ramp, or should I pull down now? It's like, you should take two more weeks in your on-ramp. It's just what you should do. Um, yeah. That's why Nolan Ryan was so crazy. Like, Nolan Ryan was able to stay healthy into his 40s. It was absolutely incredible. LeBron. Um, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So So that's really encouraging to hear, though. I'm very happy to hear that for the sake of all baseball players. I mean, like, for people that don't understand, I didn't have a serious injury by any means compared to the other players on our team. But by the end of my career at Tulane, I couldn't finish a round of in and out without – severe forearm pain where I was told, Hey, look, you just have a muscle that's clamping down on the nerve. It's going to cause uncontrollable spasms in your fingers. And it's just going to hurt like hell. And so I remember like finishing in and out, I would literally go into the dugout and just grab my elbow as hard as possible. So I could cut off the pain from going down my arm. And that wasn't, I mean, I that was just like, you know, play through it. I'm glad you, I'm glad you, yeah. that is your, as your way of coping. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was my way. I just went to the dugout. I mean, it was better than some players who, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into other you know, athletes in Tulane's medical we'll, history. We'll but pain other ways. Let's say they had it much worse. Much worse. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and there's a bunch of research, too, and I hate to hijack this because I really want to get into uh, – I want to learn from you guys. But uh, yeah, we have um, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Uh, there's a bunch of research coming out now on – I'm sure you guys have known that, like, researching tendons and ligaments – uh in the past has not been that popular they mostly look at muscles yeah. uh but we've been doing a lot of look at tendons and ligaments um and there was a study that was actually just done on uh they followed a big league organization at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year 
and they followed, uh, they did like ultrasound uh, on the UCL to measure thickness throughout mm -hmm. the season. And what they showed was at the end of the year, obviously, the UCL was thicker than at the start of the year. So essentially, they made the determination that like, oh, ligaments actually adapt. And yeah, uh, that's like, like, yeah, that's a big thing, apparently. I mean, it makes sense intuitively, if you think about it, why would those tissues not adapt if everything else does? The bones yeah. adapt, the muscles adapt, the tendons Everyone's adapt. Why would... Well, there's no blood, so it's impossible. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, maybe yeah. it's not going to bleed if you cut it, but <laughs> like... Sure. So that, but that's been a big thing because then that really just opens the door of like, oh, wait, these structures adapt. So that means inherently training is extremely important. And they uh, have shown a bunch of stuff on tendons as well, which I'm sure you guys are very well versed in. It's like uh, after a certain amount of time off, the amount of like degradation and the adaptations just is like extremely steep. Um, so things are starting to change for the better for uh, like really – uh, putting those adaptations at the forefront and like uh, being able to determine when guys are ready to throw, when they're not, um, how can we like handle them a little bit better so you don't have issues like that where um, it, they affect you for this. That's this is a big one that people don't realize they don't really pay attention to. Is like that nerve issue is never going to go away. It might, but it also might so not. Hard. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to. You have that for the rest of your life. Guys, like I've got a friend of mine who uh, had a shoulder injury in college. And then he's still like, we'll be sitting at lunch and he'll like move his shoulder. I could tell it's really bothering him. Like that doesn't go away. So yeah, uh, keeping these injuries in check and like developing better systems around making sure guys doesn't get hurt, that helps them stay on the field. But it's also a for the rest of your life thing. Because how do you think that's going to feel when you're 70? You know, not going to feel good. Um, not at all. But yeah, it's a little, but <laughs> yeah, seriously. just deal with it. Yeah. No, it's actually really interesting. Like, you know, my interest in tendons has been there ever since I was 14 because, you know, I read a book called Power Plyometrics. Jim Radcliffe, you know, was one of the authors and, and then a bobsled coach. So, like, this book, you know, I didn't know anything about bobsled. I was like, bobsled? I was like, why is a bobsled guy writing this? And then I was like, oh, I read the book and I was like, oh, this book's amazing. I don't care if the dude's in bobsled or if Jim Radcliffe, I don't even know who he was. He turns out he was the S&C coach at Oregon. I didn't know anything about, you know, college sports at the time, but Oregon has one of the best track teams of all time. And like, you know, he was working with the, the football team. Um, well, currently one of the best track teams, uh, but you know, their distance team and stuff like that is super renowned. So read this book and they're talking about tendons and all the adaptations. And I'm like, Oh, this is great. I love this. I need to get my tendons stiffer. That's the key. I need to get my whole, you know, joint stiffness and all this stuff. I need to like get better. Um, at 14, little did I know that, that some of the implications of that would be like, 10 to 12 years down the line or now 13 years down the line down the line is like hey this is relevant not just for plyometrics and sprinting and jumping but it's actually relevant for baseball and it's relevant for javelin mm -hmm. it's relevant for you know anything football baseball like soccer basketball it's like this is this is everything this is how you move this is the force transducer that lets your muscle tug on a bone and then increase the function of whatever motor pattern you're trying to do um, so I, I, would I say I happened into it? No. Cause I did my research and obviously like learned as much as I could, but like you said, there wasn't a ton on, okay, how do we get these structures to adapt? Um, you know, obviously you can look at, you know, off the top of my head, like Comey's someone that has done a ton in the way of like plyometrics and tendons in the way that, uh, uh, some of the outcome measures change with plyometrics. And at my, at my graduate school, we had, um, you know, a, a group of people at Northern Michigan that did research on plyometrics and, 
and joint stiffness and torque and all these different things. But it's really hard to kind of look specifically at what the tendon is doing, right? If you want to look at a muscle, you put an EMG unit on it. If you want to look at an output, you use a force plate. You want to look at a joint velocity or an angle, you do 3D motion analysis. But when you're starting to look at tendons and ligaments and things like that, and you're looking at like the loading there, I mean, that's pretty complex. You're talking about like, what are you going to do? Put a tensiometer, something that measures tension in someone's Achilles. A lot of people aren't going to sign up for that. (laughs) um, So, you, you know, you can indirectly do it. Uh, or you can use an isokinetic dynamometer and look at like torque that way and things and kind of maybe find the the discrepancy between the two. And, and some of these, this stuff is beyond even what I could, uh, conceptualize. But one of my good, um, friends, I've known this guy for like 10 plus years, he might not know it, but he was on a forum called elite track. And, and we did, had a discussion about high jump when I was like 15 and he was like 20 some in college doing research on high jump stuff. Um, but now he works with elite high jumpers in Europe and they're doing exactly what you're, what I was just discussing. They're basically looking at what is the muscle tendon function? What is the structure of the tendon and how do those three things lead to an outcome? Um, so it's kind of interesting. That's probably the most recent, um, interesting instrument I've heard of because otherwise, again, what are you going to image it? So what, who cares? Image it, go for it. (laughs) Like still not going to tell you much. Um, so it is like, very complex. And if you listen to like Keith Barr talk and you've listened to Jill cook talk and you've listened to Ebony Rio, all these like top 10 researchers right now, um, you know, they'll touch on performance and things like that, but there's still a lot of gaps, um, kind of in the, uh, you know, in, in that Q and a, in that, in the questions that the research questions that they, they might not have answers to yet. Um, some of that is just, it's tough to measure. It's really hard to measure these things. And it's really hard to do that with elite guys that don't want to have these things measured. Uh, so it kind of leads to like a lot of different problems. I'm sure that you've come across that a little bit if you've been doing a lot of research and and things like that into the topics, but you know, my expertise is more like, look, I know the research I've been around the research because I've read it, uh, you know, and I touch on it and my community is, you know, around that as well. And then also working with like elite jumpers, I see it firsthand. So then, okay, let me apply this research. (laughs) Did what they say actually lead to this outcome? and just run a bunch of case studies and I treat them like case studies. I record everything. I know basically everything that's going on in their lives because I have a personal relationship with them. And like you can run a a research study with X number of athletes you have, if you have a personal relationship with each of them and you track joint health and joint pain and you track or tendon, tendon pain basically. uh, And you're tracking performance and strength values and they're tracking the vertical jump. All of a sudden you get a pretty clear picture into, Hey, what are these actual, you know, long-term longitudinal pictures of months and months or sometimes years of elite, elite jumpers to kind of give you a better uh, picture of what's going on. Um, And, you know, it's funny, like there's so much misinformation in vertical jump because it's easy to say, I guarantee this will happen. And people are like, oh, if I do this program, it'll happen. Like, and, or they'll say they're vertical. It's the same thing through in baseball. Same thing. Yeah. And it's like people cheating their vertical jump too. People, uh, mess with, you can mess with settings on radar guns and change them too. People do that a lot too. So, uh, same thing. So yeah. bunch of correlations there, but go ahead. Sorry. So, uh, so this question says, who's that man with a huge neck? <laughs> <laughs> so, someone trolling you. <clears throat> Listen to the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> Anyways. Uh, yeah. So my roommate just got home. What's up, Lorenz? 
he's going to be famous through the podcast, just showing up mid-episode. Anyways, so into the question that Dean asked. Dean, you, we've kind of like jumped around all over the place, but we'll get back to really how all of these things come together because I really have actually, a, based on hearing you talk and then also my own experiences, I actually think I have a decent idea into, or I have a decent idea or a pretty good idea of what uh, recommendations I would make and kind of want to hear at least what your feedback is on what I say. Um, but anyways, yeah, so I guess you can ask your specific question and then I'll give you what my lens is of that, uh, specific topic. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just going back to, uh, I'm really interested to hear how you, uh, determine extensive and intensive plyometrics for guys. Uh, one, just like the total volumes of each, how do they progress? Um, what are you kind of doing to determine, uh, the volumes and intensities? And then two, uh, which is kind of a side topic. Um, which would be like, how do you determine uh, where we talked about like different types of plyometrics for different guys? How do you determine which type to do per guy? If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at least in jumping, um, and some of this is going to be different because you're first off, you're talking about a different tissue. So, you know, when you're looking at separation um, of the shoulder and hip axis, at least in my mind, uh, a couple different tendons, you know, come to the forefront or ligaments first off, or I guess really when you're just talking about throwing in general, the really important ones that come to my mind are going to be the ones in the elbow, the ones in the rotator cuff, and then any of the, you know, connective tissue, which probably isn't a band like tendon crossing, you know, anywhere from your chest all the way down to that opposite side hip, um, all the way through your pelvis. And then you could even say the, uh, the push off leg and, and some of those elements as well. Like you could really go into the nitty gritty of it. But the reason I talk about that is because every tendon is different. Every, every connective tissue is a little bit different. If you're looking at a band like tissue, like the Achilles, it's going to respond very differently than probably what the, uh, fascial connection or connective tissue of your oblique and your abdomen and your pec is right. Um, do we know that, that the, uh, connective tissue uh, kind of layers around the muscle and tapers down into a series element component. You know, the parallel elastic series, uh, parallel elastic components taper down to these series elastic components and make these tendons. Yeah, but the length of those tendons, how much, what type of connective tissue that is, is specifically like how much of each of these, how much of specific, and I couldn't even list them off the top of my head, but I would assume it would be like elastin or what types of collagen or how they're bunched and what type of cross-linking that it has, how each of those elements are going to impact its ability to absorb and distribute force. And then also how that tendon functions, because some tendons function like the Achilles where it's going to stretch and it's going to shorten and it's going to release a bunch of, bunch of energy. Uh, the patella probably does that to a, but to a much lesser degree and the fascicles of the muscle in the, in the, in the quadricep on a one leg jump is going to be very different than what the gastroc and soleus is doing, uh, with the Achilles on a two leg jump or a sprint or something else. Like every activity is kind of different. Um, that said, there are some consistencies that we see when you're looking at, and this comes from like the Albrecht, uh, Kitty Albrecht. And then a good friend of mine, Thomas Vidden, uh, Kortenbach, sorry sent me a bunch of different research on that I read. I couldn't list the researchers off the top of my head. Um, so I guess you're going on trust here, <laughs> but basically what we see happen is like, okay, what tendons are actually doing is they're actually functioning 
to stretch and shorten, obviously, right? And the muscle, sorry, I guess this is more important, in a stretch shortening cycle, in a good stretch shortening cycle, is actually contracting slowly concentrically instead of eccentric, isometric, and concentric. The fascicles are actually contracting slowly concentrically to tug on that tendon, especially the rope-like ones, so it can store more energy. And then actually what happens is the tendon then releases all that energy while the muscle is still, you know, contracting concentrically. So instead of, cause if you were to think about it like this, right? If I'm doing a, maybe if I just use my wrist as an example, as, as like my foot on the ground and my Achilles tendon here, obviously those tendons probably don't work specifically like that, but this will give you a, a point of reference. If you are doing like a jump and you're doing you know, like a pogo jump or something like that, just angulating at the, at the ankle joint, every time you go down, what actually happens is the muscle is actually shortening <laughs> when you're going down. That's counterintuitive if you know anything about anatomy and biomechanics because you would call that an eccentric contraction and assume that the muscle was actually lengthening. But if the muscle was lengthening as you went down, that would put the tendon on slack. You don't want the tendon to have slack in it. So what actually happens is as you're lengthening down, the muscle's pulling to store more energy and lengthen that extension spring. And then as you push up, what happens is this just holds isometrically and then boom, that tending obviously releases that energy um, or the muscle will, you know, whatever might even move eccentrically. Uh, so it's this <laughs> kind of change in what we've always thought happened. Um, so that should change a couple of things. If you're looking at training, in my opinion, one, you need to understand that these tendons, ligaments are storing a lot of energy. And the primary driver for good stress shortening cycles is not eccentric contraction. It's actually isometric or concentric contractions. So that's one big, like blew my mind when I heard it, because you always hear like, oh, eccentric, isometric, concentric. That's just the order of stress shortening cycle. But that doesn't seem to be the case, at least not for all the fascicles. So that's one thing that is in some ways relevant um, because it just demonstrates the nature of elastic activities and how intense they are. So when you're looking at intensive versus extensive and kind of how I would integrate those, I think it's, it's more or less archaic because intensive and extensive is, in my opinion, comes from Verkoshansky. So if you're looking at, and I'm assuming that's probably where you got a lot of that information. So if you're looking at what Verkoshansky said, he would say, okay, extensive is going to be easy bounds. You know, you can read his manual or you can read all the forms and he's like, oh, easy bounds down the track or A skips or B skips or things like that. And then intensive is the same thing, but you're going to add a little bit of effort. And then you get into kettlebell jumps specifically or barbell jumps. And then you go into depth jumps. And initially he did block periodization. So it was just extensive, just intensive, just, I mean, this is to my knowledge and reading the forums and stuff, but you would get different opinions from different people, just squat jumps and just actualizing it in depth jumps and then your performance. But if you read a little later on, he changes in the forums how he recommends training. He's like, oh no, if I had a basketball player, I would do these days as, <laughs> I would do these days as strength and I would have one depth jump day and then I would have a day of dunking a basketball through the ring, like is what he like calls it in the forums. And so if you're reading that, you're like, oh, this is all super interesting. Like, and so I've, I've tried actually doing that at one point, I think two years ago or so, um, just to see. I was like, I'm curious. I just want to try block periodization. It works. I mean, a lot of people do block periodization. I think Jordan Kilgannon does a lot of block periodization. He's one of the best jumpers in the entire world, if not the best jumper off two feet in the entire world. So obviously it works. Um, but how I quantify plyometrics is more based off of what my mentor says. 
And that is by not putting them into these hard like boxes, you know what I mean? To say, well, this is an extensive and this is an intensive and this is what this value is. Because first off, plyometrics are incredibly hard to quantify. So if you just say that something something's intensive, well, maybe that thing that you said was intensive because you tried harder was actually double leg. And when you were doing those easy bounds as extensive, they were actually much more intense than what you thought they were. So, and then it's also tendon specific, like a depth jump with no knee bend is incredibly rigorous on your Achilles, but you can do a modified depth jump where you land in a semi-squat and that becomes super rigorous on your patella. And if you land on your heel, that doesn't load the Achilles really at all. <laughs> like it actually loads your knee and your hip more. So how you do the plyometric also matters. So this comes kind of full circle into, okay, how, well, how do we, if we're throwing extensive and intensive out the window, how are we going to quantify intensity in plyometrics? And this is where I'll get into it. Uh, and again, this comes from my mentor, but it's based off of biomechanics and, and physics and things like that. So first off, you can't really say definitively that something is or is not more intense, but you can get a pretty good idea if you use a couple different, I guess, uh, variables that you're looking at. The first one that you can look at is vertical drop height. So how much vertical drop height do you have? That's probably the most important thing when you're looking at a plyometric. Then the second thing is probably, are you double leg or are you single leg? <laughs> That's another really important one. Um, the third one is going to be ground contact time in that plyometric. So are you a really short contact? And that goes hand in hand with the range of motion that you're doing that plyometric through. So, you know, if that maybe the fourth one, those go hand in hand because you can't have a short ground contact time with a big range of motion. It's almost impossible. You never, I could, I could beat a big leaguer. Like if I was like doing like, they're like, okay, do your windup and then I'll, I'll throw the ball. It's only time. I just do that. Boom. I'm going to beat their windup every time. Why? Because this is a fraction of the range of motion. I'm always going to beat their windup. Even if, even if just you go from the point where they start to pull forward on the ball, I'm probably going to beat it just because my range of motion is, I don't know that for sure, but the range of motion is just so much shorter. I have way less time that I am required to produce force. Same thing's true. If you're looking at impulse on a force plate with a, uh, with a squat, with a deep squat jump. So say you paused at the very bottom with a barbell on your back, right? And say it was hundred K let's say Dean, you're doing it's hundred K. You're in the very bottom of a squat. And I say, jump as high as you can out of that position, pause for three seconds, jump as high as you can. And then I say, okay, Dean, now I want you to go to a half squat with a bar on your back, pause for three seconds, push out of that position. Which one's going to take more time? Well, the deep squat's going to take more time. <laughs> like, even if you took the most explosive athlete on the planet and put him in that super deep position, you would, pro you might get out of that half squat faster, right? Same height, say relatively same height, whatever. And you took a really explosive human, you're probably still going to beat them out of that half squat just because it's a shorter range of motion. So the ground contact time is what a lot of people look at when they're looking at elasticity. When people say elasticity, that term, in my opinion, is almost irrelevant because elasticity is a physics term that is used for stress and strain and you're looking at deformation and this could be wrong because i'm not an engineer i have no formal like phd in this or <laughs> engineering degree but this is material science and what i've studied elasticity is hey look this is how much this thing deforms this is how much uh energy you would basically get back oh and hunter asked me a good question he was like wait so if you had a baseball player and you wanted to get them from 95 to 100 where would you start and i said it's all relative um, so it would depend on where their pain levels were with what they were previously doing. And I would base the program around what they, what I know their current load capacity is, um, mm -hmm. using the pain levels that they had. So, uh, I think the, the four that I said was drop height, single leg or double leg, 
um, whether it was short ground contact or long ground contact, range of motion, those ones kind of paired. And then the fifth one is whether or not you have a horizontal momentum built into it. So for example, if you're looking at a high jump, you're taking a horizontal momentum. You don't have any real negative vertical velocity from the time you tow off your penultimate step. Some guys actually have a positive velocity because they push up into the plant. Um, I probably don't, but <laughs> really good jumpers either are flat or some will actually push up into the plant. Both are good strategies, but you definitely don't want a downward negative vertical velocity. So meaning your body isn't accelerating down toward the ground is it's not a momentum you have to stop. So then once you, once you go to push, um, back up out of that, you would think, oh, well, he doesn't have any negative vertical velocity. He should be able to jump super high. Well, that's not the case because that plyometric, because it's a stretch shortening cycle that is occurring is actually super intense because you've accelerated with a velocity. You have a horizontal velocity into that plant. So now when you plant your leg, it's super high load because you're, you're having to stop eight meters per second of horizontal velocity down to maybe four meters of horizontal vertical velocity, maybe even three. Uh, so you, you've blocked five meters of my five meters per second in 200 milliseconds, or maybe, maybe even 160 milliseconds, right? So yeah, you might not have a, you have a, a vertical, but your horizontal so fast and you're, and you're converting it to vertical so quickly, you're actually stopping the horizontal that much. You're decelerating that much as well as accelerating vertically that much up to four meters per second ver vertically with, you know, a given mass that it's a super high tendon load. One of the most intense things you can do on your patella, uh, cause your dynamic strength and your quadricep, that's basically what we call just like your ability, your jump, <laughs> I don't even know, like jumping ability really is that off one leg, um, or it's one of the most important things. Uh, so yeah, it's a super high load. So when you look at those, whatever, four or five that I listed, you can get a pretty good idea of how to, how to plan your, your plyometrics accordingly. So if you're dealing with baseball, right, this is how I would more or less do it. How much counter, what, I think the three you said were the block hip, the amount of counter rotation, and what was the third one? Well, that's uh, just like strategies for loading, uh, like hip and shoulder separation. So it's like oh, okay. kind of rotation, rotation of pelvis during the drive, and impulse for the block. It's really just like, yeah. uh, really just uh, mechanical. APIs, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah like kind of like running. things to analyze on how the if the athlete's efficiently loading uh, hip and shoulder yeah. separation from a mechanical perspective. If that makes sense. Yes. Uh, so but most of these, I would think, would be more. I would assume it would be more determinant, or like the. Uh, the shoulder and elbow uh, ability would be more determinate than because most guys like don't have sure oblique pulls happen, but like not very often, you know, uh, mm -hmm. it's mostly elbow and shoulder, mostly elbow, okay. second shoulder behind elbow. So Dean okay. question, let me just return the favor to you. You, okay. have, a division, you have a division one pitcher off season. Okay. He wasn't fit to summer league coach said, take the time off do whatever you want to do. He somehow convinced them not to ship him off to East Jesus um, in the middle of Ohio. So he comes to you. Hey, man, I'm sitting 91, 92. I just really need to hit 95, 96. Um, I have no pain when I throw. I long toss three days a week. I'm a closer. What what kind of training should I do? What kind of program are you going to put me on? Um, you tell that kid. So I generally, I want to look at uh, where his biggest like bang for his buck areas are. So if he's never lifted before, uh, if he like is just super weak, like you're going to gain a little bit of velocity there. 
Um, but it's also like specific to the demands of each piece. So for example, um, like you obviously know nothing about how strong someone's upper body is if you look at what their back squat is, you know? So uh, similarly, if their lead leg block is great and they're generating a bunch of momentum down the mound and they don't really have any issues there, then increasing squat uh, strength like isn't gonna help very much. But if somebody gets into perfect positions and then they get into the block and you can see that lead knee start to like bend and then lose energy up the chain, like that may be someone who could benefit from something like that. So essentially trying to assess each piece in the chain, um, how can we improve it and like get it to do its job better? Uh, and then also look at it from a mechanical perspective because most guys don't throw, like their mechanics aren't great. They make some really, really uh, important um like the really, really important pieces early in the throw mess up. And then when they mess up, they can't send as much energy up the chain. So they may move really fast, uh, but because like they may move fast at the end of the chain, but because it's the beginning of the chain, it messed up, uh, it won't, uh, they won't throw as hard. So uh, it's really looking at those, trying to figure out what pieces can we add physically? Uh, and then what pieces can we add mechanically? And then if everything is really good on those, then it's just, um, which is usually not the case, uh, but if everything is really good on those, because we've had a few guys who do that, um, then it's really about um, optimizing when you give each really high intensity training stimulus. And it's really about like optimizing the recovery from that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if your threshold's here, then we'll put you there and then see how you recover from that. Um, then we'll continue, if that makes sense. More and more and more. Coincidental, because that's exactly what I said. It's all relative. Yeah. I said, I'd see where you were yeah. and I'd build on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just another question that I was always, I had to coach um, like a junior high school team one summer. And one thing that I struggled with was when I was, cause I wasn't a pitcher. I broke down the biomechanics the best I could during a summer to try to learn. So I could try to tell these kids exactly what they need to strive for. One thing that I struggled with was understanding um, what the functional mobility was for the shoulder joint. I never knew uh, they always wanted like, Hey, how far back do I need to be able to like rotate? Uh, my hand backwards because all of them, all of the kids saw those still frame pictures of major league baseball players where their hands are actually underneath their elbow mm -hmm. at full external rotation. You can't do that. Hunter. And that's not show me that. Show me it. Do it. I used to be able to do that. <laughs> I used to be able to um, way back in the day. And so it was one thing that, um, cause all, all of them, they're high school boys. They just wanted to train. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all they're working, all they were working were pressing movements. So they were getting stronger, but they were getting tighter. And I never knew how to incorporate proper flexibility training so that they could maintain um, some of that, which I assume is needed, while also building up the strength to handle the increased load. Yeah, so first thing, uh, I look at the shoulder as a rubber band or like a spring, if that makes sense. So uh, the total range of motion is important, but it isn't the main thing. The main thing is like, um, how efficiently do you load it? And once it's fully loaded, um, how much does it really produce coming out of external rotation, so into internal rotation? So uh, the analogy I use a lot is like, uh, you got a spring like on your pen, you know, and then you got a spring on your car and the shocks. And they're both springs, but like if you load both of them with an unbelievable amount of energy, the one from your car is going to produce way more 
uh, energy when it's unloading, if that makes sense. So it's really, in my opinion, <laughs> what was that? I said the same is true for jumping. This is the exact yeah. same for jumping. Yeah, so perspective is, okay, how efficiently can we load that spring? And then for the other perspective is, well, what's the actual property of that spring? Is it is it good enough to produce anything? So um, now strength is one thing that will help, um, but it's only one thing. So if you look at it as like all these different like bars, like I'm sure when you guys play video games when you're a kid and you tried to like make your character better. All the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slide uh, all the way up. Yeah, but it's like if you're if one slider is like really really high and another one is like really low, then you're going to get more benefit from upping the low one than you are from upping the high one. It doesn't mean avoid yeah. the high one. It just means like um, pay attention to the low ones as well. So that's really what I would look at. And what I've kind of turned to with my guys now um, with upper body lifting is once they gain about twenty or thirty pounds on their bench. I switch them out of a strength phase and I switch them into some sort of rate of force development uh, and plyometric focused phase. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, I just found that like after 20 or 30 pounds, uh, they just kind of, their velo like did this at the beginning throwing wise, and then it's caps and then it starts to go back that, down. Hit the other side of the U, U curve. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. And the idea for me was like, okay, now I assume we've improved like uh, total uh, max force that they can produce, which is great. We got some tenon adaptations as well uh, from the max uh, lifting because when I improve guys' strength, uh, if you guys have seen my Instagram, it's very, very heavy <laughs> um, that we lift. But um, I really, I want to keep each piece, if that makes sense. I don't want to just sell out for one piece because uh, then you lose the uh, – positive things for the other pieces if that makes sense so your, um, your programming is very 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 similar to mine in a lot of ways by the way like progress. that that's like something that i say pretty pretty frequently is like hey look if you uh you know if you if you want to just do max strength that's great but guess what now you detrained all the other qualities that i just spent or you may have spent years developing you just yep. ignore them and now they're gone yep. <laughs> like, yeah yeah absolutely yeah so yeah, absolutely. Something big that I say. Yeah, so to wrap it all up, I would just say, like, it's really a lot of people look at, oh, how, like, I need, why is my external rotation not what it should be? Now, it could be because uh, you just, like, for me, if you look at the video of me throwing, I don't have as much external rotation as some other guys. And that's strictly a structural thing. I just don't have a lot of range of motion in a lot of my joints, just how I was built. Uh, but I'm loading that spring really, really efficiently. And the spring has like pretty good properties in terms of like professional throwers. Um, now you could look at a younger guy and maybe uh, with younger guys, things start to get really weird because they aren't trained as much. Um, they don't have as good mechanics. Um, so maybe he's just like not sending the energy up the chain to load it. Um, maybe he doesn't have enough extra rotation similar to me. So it's just like, maybe he's loading it perfectly. It just looks like it's not being loaded fully. Uh, and then maybe he actually doesn't have the strength to handle the energy that he's sending up the chain and his body just like kicks on a block and it's like, nope, not gonna send it any deeper than this because we, we're gonna get hurt if we do that. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a bunch That's of different things that block. could happen. Yeah, yeah, um, which is not fun. Uh, I had a few of those coming back from my elbow surgery where uh, I'm just dieseling 82 and I'm looking at my mechanics and it just looks horrible. 
Uh, and then uh, I try the same effort like a few months later and it's 96, you know, but it's like, I'm, everything feels the exact same to me. I'm trying to do the same thing, but my body has, is allowing itself to move in a completely different way. Um, which obviously is all anecdotal. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of, and I have gotten into arguments with uh, a few of our R and D staff members before about that topic. So uh, don't take that as fact. That is my opinion. Um, what's, what's so funny yeah. is like, the same thing you just discussed happens in jumping all the time. Hey, should I change my technique if I'm jumping higher with crap technique? And it's like, yes, you should try. But then if it doesn't work, just go ahead and revert back. It's going to happen. But like, of course you want to try to have good technique. You know what I mean? But if you're getting hurt, mm -hmm. if you have mobility restrictions, if you, you have to find a workaround, like for example, mm -hmm. your internal rotation, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to pronate. I'm going to pronate at my foot a lot because I don't yeah, have the ability yeah. to, I can't, I can't internally rotate. So I'll just get it somewhere else another way or ankles yeah. so we always get with ankles. It's like, well, how am I going to do that? Well, just let your heel come off the ground a little bit and you know, you'll, you'll get the knee flexion you need. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which that was yeah. actually a huge one for me because most people, they, they teach very similar uh, or like this very, I don't know. It's like they try and put pictures into a box where like, this is what you have to feel. This is what you have to do with your, with your hip and, and with different pieces. But if you have, everybody has different ranges of motions. So it's going to work for some guys and guys like me, it's just not going to work for um, where uh, Trevor Bauer is a current big leaguer. We have very similar hip structures and we talk a lot about um, how things move. And, uh, and we talk a lot about training and he trains here in, in uh, pretty close to my house, but um, you guys probably experience all the so, same things. Yeah, very similar things. Uh, so it's yeah. it's interesting to then be able to adapt that model of, okay, what are we really trying to do? Well, we're trying to load like hip and shoulder separation with the lower half. Great. How can we do that with the pieces that we're given? Not yeah. this, oh, get your heel on the ground, stay in external rotation, feel it in your glute, like get away from that. Let's just, what is the end goal? And then how can I use the pieces that I have personally to achieve that end goal? that makes sense yeah this is like the exact yeah. argument i used to run into with like speed and power jumping i'm like well if you look at the large majority of speed jumpers they all kick their butt when they contact down on the takeoff foot and like i want to do that and it looks pretty so i'm going to try to rep replicate that and like you know it's like well are there other ways that you can just you know get your center of mass higher and over the bar <laughs> it's like yeah there's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. i want to try this one i want to try this one i want to know and for me it was an experiment hey look is it worth it to convert is it worth it to go from a power jumper to a speed jumper? Is it worth it? Tell me. Or is your body just predisposed to that? And it's like, I would say, hey, look, if you want to learn to do this, do it with your other arm. <laughs> or, or yeah. sorry, your other leg. Yeah. Do it with your other leg. You want to learn how to do You want to learn how to sure. be a speed jumper? Use your other leg. You want to learn how to throw this sure. way? Use your other leg. Use your other arm. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's the better solution. You don't have to ruin everything you've developed on the strong side over the last 15 years. Uh, if you want to try to do that, why don't you learn on the other side? It's a completely new motor pattern. You're neurally wired. You'll figure it out. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Um, we actually yeah. have really good, uh, uh, something that just came to my head is uh, specifically in the lower half, there's some guys who are really linear, meaning they're really like knee extension. They're really like extension dominant, if that makes sense. So knee extension, hip extension, ankle extension. Um, now, given the model of like the three things that load hip and shoulder separation they're not going to rotate the pelvis as much during the drive but they're going to depend a lot on the impulse from the block like getting the pelvis in the right position a lot of momentum in the block center of the chain now there's some guys who are the opposite where they're really really rotation driven so they're going to depend a lot on uh the rotation of the pelvis during the drive and not that much on the impulse from the block so 
in trying to get people to accomplish different things, uh, we're realizing that like, oh, if someone's very extension driven, that like we can't just make them rotation driven. It's just like not really how it works. But what we can do is we can put them in a better position to be extension driven and then get the uh, things that they want out of the throw. So put them in a better position to then just like, okay, this is what you do. You extend. So if your pelvis is in this position and you extend, it's going to rotate, if that makes sense. Instead of trying to get them in all the positions that guys who rotate get into and then try and get them to rotate like someone who rotates, just put them in the right position to do what they do. Uh, and we've had a lot of success doing that instead of trying to make people move differently, if that makes sense. I think it's, yeah, it's really sure tough, too, when yeah. you deal with all those planes of movement. That makes it so much more complex when you're talking about, yeah. like... That's yeah. what I was building, yeah. I was building on that. So we used to have this, uh, it was like this sign at Tulane. It was like, build your swing here, and it was the hack shack, and it was like, trust it out there. And it was because in baseball, you have so much movement going on in any one activity or, like, part of the game. You're thinking about... Okay, I need to keep my hands inside, back elbow collapses, like hands through the ball, drive with the bottom hand, like top hand leads it through. You know, like your swing I is going to look I want you to think like about ferocious. all of that in a matter of what, how long? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, like, way, and a second. Ready, go. Yeah, 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 yeah. ready, go. <laughs> and it's the same thing with pitching. Like pitching, you have so much going on. There's so much mm -hmm. activity in the body. And it looks fluid at a major league level. But if you were to take a high school kid or someone who just got to college and break down their motion, I'm sure – you put them on a mount and they'd just be uh they'd have you know paralysis by analysis like wait how many things am i supposed to be thinking about like what am i supposed to feel yeah so, so, like yeah the wrist that's it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah this part that's all i need yeah. yeah do this yeah do this just keep doing this yeah what some coaches don't seem to understand is that like these kids might have thousands of reps in one uh in one motion and mm -hmm. so all of a sudden like throwing three new things that they got to feel like literally the neural connections have to physically rewire for yeah. you to ingrain a new movement pattern that's and so that's literally coordination that's what yeah. you define like to yeah. yeah yeah it's actually really funny if you think about from a pitching perspective most coaches most coaches will say oh if you have this mechanical flaw that means that you will never be able to throw strikes or you'll never be able to put the ball where you want it or whatever and in reality if you were to change away from that movement it's now a brand new movement so your command's probably going to get worse if you think about it that way, yeah. like uh, the, yeah. the mathematics behind like throwing strikes is if your release trajectory differs by one degree in any plane, you miss the strike zone. So like, yeah. think about pulling, I use this analogy a lot. Think about pulling into your driveway. And if you were able to map the, uh, the path that you took to pull into your driveway, which you do every day and every day, it's going to be different by like five to 10 degrees every day. Yeah. And you're expecting yeah college kids or even like professionals to be able to repeat this unbelievably complex movement at extremely high intensity with multiple different pitches, which are then different movements in themselves within a less than one degree of variance. And even if of one degree, you still throw a ball. So it's like at 0.3 degrees yeah, of variance. Right? That's why he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone go look at an overlay of Mariano Rivera pitching. You literally can't tell the difference. One ball moves in on you. One ball moves away from the plate by like six to eight inches. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. But yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, we've we've covered like a ton of information, and we haven't even really covered 
the thing that you wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I appreciate talking with you guys. Though. It was great. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I knew you'd have fun. I was like, Dean, you'll really enjoy it. I was like, just just trust yeah. me. Just, just come on the show. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> yeah. I thought it would be really good. That was, I was excited. I told you. I think we both agree. We were like, yeah, I'm really excited to like see how this goes. I think we'll have a lot to talk about. And it's actually funny. Absolutely. Like how many similarities um, there actually are in the way that we approach training and the way that we approach the nervous system, the muscles, recovery, mm-hmm. uh, all those things. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's good to finally be able to sit down and then talk it all through and be like, oh, I wasn't off base on all this stuff that I actually observed in my sport at a super high level. And that you're also absorbing yeah, sure. major leaguers at a super high level. Um, you know, maybe, maybe someday I'll be lucky enough to, to work with someone of that caliber. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely been, been a good conversation. We'll have yeah. to either do another mm-hmm. podcast part or two. part two. Yeah. Either that, or what we can do is I'll get on a call with you separately and specifically answer those mm-hmm. questions. <laughs> yeah, sure, man. Um, yeah, right. yeah. But I'm going to close out here, uh, just cause we're pretty far through this. Uh, so thanks for listening guys. Uh, be sure to like subscribe, comment, uh, make sure you follow Dean on Instagram. Dean, what is your, what is your at? What is your is at double x can flex so d-o-u-b-l-e-x-c-a-n-f-l-e-x double x can flex which is a whole other story in itself don't worry we'll get to that another time i'm looking (laughs) at it now it's worth a follow he puts up serious weight and throws a baseball very hard so (laughs) you like either of those things you'll like his uh you'll like his instagram page you like training you'll like dean stuff if you're a nerd and you follow me you'll probably like dean stuff um anyways yeah dean thank you so much for coming on and uh, listeners, thanks for thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll catch you next time. Peace out. Okay, stay on, Dean. <laughs> <laughs>